Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The market for non-fungible tokens is evolving fast. People are spending hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on NFTs. To explore this entertaining, fast-paced and flawed market, this week The Economist went down the rabbit hole. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the market, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show, we'll be looking at two faces of the fast-changing financial system in Africa as we ask why payments are the magic ingredient for a new generation of fintech unicorns. There's a bigger and more important conversation happening now about cross-border payments. And investors are looking at companies who can power that, companies who are looking to expand across the continent. And we speak to Sim Chabalala, head of the continent's largest lender, Standard Bank Group, about how the financial establishment is responding to that challenge. We've made large changes to our business to be able to deliver that level of service because we don't want these people, big techs, fintechs and new entrants to stand between us and our clients. An NFT is a digital record of ownership that lives on a blockchain and can be bought using cryptocurrency. The non-fungible bit just means that they're unique. One NFT cannot be swapped for another, unlike a dollar bill or any other currency for that matter. NFTs are digital originals, and they can be of almost anything. A tweet, a piece of code, a video of a basketball player's epic slam dunk. And in 2021, the markets exploded. Jesus Christ, what the f***? In March, Christie's auctioned off an NFT of an artwork by Beeple for a staggering $69.3 million. $69 million. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. There were some $340 million worth of NFTs last year. Now that's over $14 billion. And this week, The Economist joined the fray. We created an NFT of an image of our Alice in Wonderland-inspired cover on decentralised finance. And we put it up for auction in order to raise money for the Economist Educational Foundation. Our own Alice, Alice Forward, who wrote that package, kicked off the auction on Monday, October the 25th. I am sitting in Chicago O'Hare Airport on a layover between two flights that I rearranged so that I could be present to push this button. Essentially, what I'm going to have to do is open up The Economist's profile on Foundation. I will click on a button on our NFT that says list. That will prompt my wallet to ask me to sign that transaction. That will take, you know, a few seconds to be processed by the Ethereum blockchain. And then the auction will be live and anyone can bid until someone wins. It started slow and steady. By Tuesday morning, we were at 10 Ether, or about $40,000. Then things started to hot up. 
Okay, so it is about 12.30 Eastern time. We are at a current high of 66.66 ETH, our auction was faced and half an hour ago. It's been extended probably about eight, eight or nine times now. In the last 15 minutes of the auction, any further bids extend the time by another quarter of an hour. Oh my God. Well, we're at 280k now, there are nine minutes left. No one at The Economist is doing any work if the messages I'm getting from all of my colleagues are anything to go by. We are all <laughs> just wasting away our lives watching this clock tick down and down. Our editor-in-chief is on a walk. She couldn't take the stress. At one point, it looked like it was all over. OK, we're in that like weird window where you can't see what the clock is anymore. Is this it? And then a final bid came in. It 100% looked like we were done, that the auction was sold and settled at 81 ETH at like literally the last moment. Like, it, my clock had counted all the way down. It looked like it was done, but there must have been like a bid placed just like as the blocks were processing. And so like a new, a completely new bidder came in at, with 90, with a 90.5 ETH bid, took us up to 380K. Chaos, absolute chaos. My lovely producer, Amica, has asked me how my nerves are. They are absolutely shredded to pieces. Um, very excited. <laughs> what is happening? It is 41 seconds to go. Are we done? Oh my God, we might be done. <laughs> I don't know what to say. This is insane. It's fun but absolutely insane. The auction has now officially closed. We have a winner and Alice is here to talk it all over with me. Alice, what was the final total? How much did the NFT make? So we managed to sell our NFT for 99.9 Ether, which is the cryptocurrency native to the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and that's worth, well, it varies, but roughly $420,000 at the time that the auction closed. The proceeds of that net of the fee that we paid to the auctioning platform and potential tax liabilities and transaction costs, all those things will be donated to the Economist Educational Foundation, which is totally thrilled with the amount of money that we've managed to raise. So that's very exciting. And so what exactly does the new owner of the NFT get? This is a very good question. You know, a lot of people have sort of mocked NFTs as, you know, people buying nothing effectively because you don't get the copyright over the image. You don't get an image that anyone else can't also have. But the sort of specific thing that the person has bought is a record on the Ethereum blockchain that says that a certain wallet created this NFT and that it was sold in a transaction to the eventual buyer. And that record is immutable, it will exist for as long as that blockchain does. That does confer some sense of originality or scarcity. There is only one of this token. It's mostly taken off in art markets so far. Um, that's certainly what NFTs were designed to be used for. But they're starting to have uses, you know, in, in all kinds of industries. They've been very big in gaming. They're being used a lot in these sort of new futuristic digital world called metaverses. And there's some fun experimentation with sort of real world, i.e. not digital world uses as well. So San Marino, a small country in Southern Europe, has approved the use of NFTs to issue digital COVID vaccine passports. Someone even managed to sell a flat in Kiev using an NFT earlier this year. 
Do you see NFTs as potentially being useful for financial applications as well? One of the interesting features of NFTs is that they effectively unbundle different kinds of property rights. It's it's kind of akin to a license. The buyer of our NFT can use the image in certain ways. And that unbundling of property rights is very common in high finance. I mean, if you think about the sort of most basic example, a company the shareholders are owners over the equity, the bondholders are owners over the debt, um, different people run the organisation, that company can issue derivatives that have sort of certain claims. And one of the sort of interesting ideas about using NFTs in finance is they could plug in to this very quickly growing universe of financial applications that exist on the Ethereum blockchain called DeFi, or decentralised finance, the term that was on our cover you know, ways of lending and borrowing and and saving and all of those things as well. Okay, so huge potential. And um, as you've said, the auction itself was was exciting, but the process hasn't been exactly smooth. I mean, I don't want to say nightmarish, but at times that is how it's been. There were a lot of things that I had to wrestle with internally and externally to get to the point where we could issue this NFT. Most tax and legal teams have never really attempted to do anything like this before. And so it's obviously sort of a big hurdle to clear. You know, that's for businesses, for individuals. It would also be an awful lot of work to feel like you knew you were doing the right thing. And in order for NFTs to really take off in a sort of widespread adoption mainstream way, they probably do need to be as easy to use and create as, you know, just using an application on your iPhone. They also probably need to be more efficient um, and cheaper to create than they are now. There are a lot of costs associated with issuing NFTs um, and using the Ethereum blockchain to do it. I presume a lot of that will get smoother over time. Do you think the advantages of NFTs still outweigh the costs? In theory, yes, they can. Already, it's much easier to issue an NFT than it was a few years ago. But there remains this sort of almost conceptual problem about how you enforce what an NFT is in the real world and sort of a contract enforcement problem. So for instance, this flat in Kiev, okay, you've created an NFT of that flat, but how do you ensure that when that NFT changes hands, the actual owner of that house changes hands? They essentially wrote a very sort of long legal contract that they then got agreement from all property agencies and the government to do that essentially said that whoever owned the NFT owned the property, and that's how it would work going forwards. It seems like there's a very high hurdle to make sure that that NFT has real meaning and real value in the real world as well as the digital world. The other big Big problem is the environmental cost associated with issuing NFTs. What's the carbon footprint of an NFT? It's difficult to say for certain. There are various methodologies that people use that you can look up online. Um, I plugged our NFT and the transactions that we did into various of those calculators, and it seemed like the cost was somewhere between a short-haul economy flight and a long-haul economy flight. There are a couple of ways that you could try and deal with that problem. One is moving to a mechanism that isn't so energy-intensive to very transactions. Um, and there are efforts to do that with the Ethereum blockchain already. But what we ended up with was, was higher than I expected. And, you know, it maybe seems reasonable for our sort of one-off experiment. But if people were using them all the time to post images, the carbon emissions that that would produce do seem just infeasibly high. So that's quite a daunting to-do list then. Is the future non-fungible, Alice? And do you think this might be the first of many NFT auctions for you? I mean... I'm not doing another one again soon. It was definitely fun, but it 
was also totally exhausting. Um, in terms of whether or not, you know, we'll all be doing non-fungible stuff in the future, a hard maybe, but it does seem like there are an increasing number of use cases, both sort of fun ones like gaming and also important ones like property and vaccine passports. And the more use cases that crop up, the more convinced I am that we'll all be using non-fungible tokens in the future for all kinds of things that we do. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you, Rajna. Coming up, we'll be looking at a fintech frenzy in Africa. But first, if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. This week, you'll find our guide to what to look out for this earnings season. And you can follow our coverage of the trouble at the heart of China's property market. That's economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next. 2021 has already been a record year for African fintech. The continent's population of unicorns has more than doubled, as four fintech firms reached or exceeded billion-dollar valuations. As foreign investment pours in, these companies are expanding across the continent and reaching into new services. But the biggest buzz is around payments. It's been a bit of a hockey stick summer. Imagine a hockey stick-shaped graph where it's a little bit slow at the beginning, and then there's a real rapid and sustained growth in the sector towards the end of the season. Ore Ogunbi writes about business for The Economist. The four companies that have cemented their unicorn status this year are all, at least in part, peer-to-peer payment platforms. So that's Chipper Cash, Flutterwave, Opay, and Wave. So Chipper Cash closed a $100 million funding round in May, led by Silicon Valley Bank. Today, Chipper is the largest peer-to-peer cross-border payment service in Africa, with millions of people registered on our platform across multiple countries and continents. In August, you had Opay, which is now valued at $2 billion, with the help of SoftBank, a Japanese tech VC giant who made its first bet on the continent with the company. We want to encourage the tech community in Nigeria and the innovators to come up with different stuff that they want to build and what they want to offer the market. But don't worry about payments because OP has your back. You have Wave, which is based in Senegal and became Francophone Africa's first unicorn with the help of Sequoia Heritage. Validate votre paiement. Scanner, c'est payé. Wave, Sahalis, yaiborom. And Flutterwave, which is already a unicorn, but is reportedly in talks to secure additional funding and triple its valuation to $3 billion. We started Flutter with a tiny office space in Lagos. It was just a tiny office with chairs, tables and whiteboards and large hats. We didn't have a lot, but we had a very convincing mission to unite Africa into a single market through payment. 
So there's excitement across the board. And I think even the fact that Francophone Africa is getting involved is getting people excited. And some people think this is just the beginning. Now, Africa has long been talked about as an undertapped market for fintech, especially compared with the speed of growth and now the massive scale of the Chinese and Southeast Asian giants. Why do you think payments in particular are proving to be such fertile ground for African entrepreneurs? Africa's payment sector is an obvious choice for investors. I mean, the continent will be home to 1.5 billion people by 2025, most of which are young and the population is also very digitally literate. And, you know, there's high levels of internet and mobile penetration. But take Nigeria, for example, the most populated country on the continent, 60% of that population is actually unbanked or underbanked. And these customers tend to prefer alternative financial services like mobile money, peer-to-peer payment options that are designed with them in mind. In the Ivory Coast, for example, 94% of students pay school fees via mobile money. And WAVE expanded there in April because there's real fertile territory to capitalise on that. Now, it's nearly 15 years since M-Pesa first pioneered a mobile payment system in Kenya. And listeners can hear more about that in our Game Changers podcast, the latest episode of which is all about mobile money. But Ori, why is this flurry of competition and foreign investor interest coming now? So there's been a bit of movement in the sector before. Stripe bought Paystack in 2020, for example, and that was seen as massive. Visa helped InterSwitch, a Nigerian payments platform, reach unicorn status in 2019. But it's accelerating a lot more rapidly. And I think the case for these payment companies is being made more urgent by the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which has now been ratified by 38 countries. And their Pan-African Payments and Settlement System was launched in September to improve interoperability. So basically, there's a bigger and more important conversation happening now about cross-border payments within the continent. And investors are looking at companies who can power that, um, companies who even though they're based in maybe a few countries at the moment, are looking to expand across the continent. Now, we're talking about the continent as a whole, but there are vast differences between national markets. How much of a challenge do you think that is to international investors? So, yeah, there are big differences in concentration and maturity. Nigeria, for example, is home to almost two thirds of Africa's fintech investments this year. That has quite a bit to do with how developed their payments ecosystem already is. One challenge I think that foreign investors are facing is that in trying to facilitate cross-border payments, they have to deal with very different regulatory frameworks in different countries. If we look to the Asian giants as a model, payments has often been the entry point to branching out into more complex financial services. Is that happening with the African fintech firms as well? I think you are seeing a bit of that, yes. They're challenging incumbents across a growing range of services. So Opay is known for blitz scaling. They now, in addition to payments, also offer interest-free loans. They kind of started as a ride-hailing app and now it looks like they're going to be going into e-commerce a bit more broadly as well. And so in that sense, Opay is a bit like Grab and Gojek in Indonesia. And Opay is now more valuable than Nigeria's most valuable bank. And, you know, for example, Chipper Cash was initially focused on remittances. But this year they launched a cryptocurrency wallet in South Africa and announced that they've been licensed in Uganda to enable trading of shares on the U.S. stock market. We've taken a financial instrument that had previously been restricted to a select group of people and democratized it at a scale that only Chipper can. So I think you are seeing, you know, payments as an entry point, but lots of people trying to expand and diversify into other areas. 
What's the relationship between these firms and traditional banks? Are the fintechs sort of looking to circumvent the banking system or are they working with it? So it really varies from country to country and between services. In Nigeria, for example, you still need the banks, even if it's just on the back end, for these peer-to-peer payments to actually work. Paystack is a little bit more like Stripe as is Flutterwave, in that they enable merchants to more seamlessly integrate payment services. So they deal with more the payments infrastructure. Opay and Wave apps are a little bit different. They run a network of agents, so like small local businesses, who basically use their on-hand cash to service users. So is this summer hockey stick then the beginning of something much bigger? Do you see momentum gathering? Definitely. I mean, it's been a bumper year. And in terms of VC activity, though, I think Africa's fintech space still has quite a way to go to catch up with other emerging markets like Latin America, for example. You know, I interviewed the co-founder of Flutterwave, Inya Boyeji, who's now actually a startup investor himself. And he says that the scene looks a little bit like China in the 70s. It's a large market. Lots of people are unbanked and Investors are basically just trying to get in there early and do some good deals. But I think the ecosystem is maturing. I think investors are realising that they can really unlock a wealth of opportunity there and they're paying some more attention. All right, Ogunbi, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachna. This surge of investment and diversification among fintech firms is rapidly changing Africa's financial landscape and conventional banks are having to transform how they operate in turn. Africa's largest bank by assets and one of its oldest is Standard Bank Group. Founded in 1862, it now has 50,000 employees in 20 African countries, plus offices in London, New York, Sao Paulo, Beijing and Dubai. The group's chief executive is Sim Chabalala. Our correspondent Kinley Salmon, based in Senegal, interviewed him for Money Talks and asked him how this behemoth of African banking is responding to the fintech challenge. I'm reading about the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, you know, the period between 1700 and 1850 in the United Kingdom, and it's fascinating. I think what is true today as it was then is that fortune favours the big battalions. We've got massive scale advantages as Standard Bank Group. First of all, we've got great brand strength and great legitimacy. We've got a strong and long list of exceptionally wonderful vendors and partners, uh, which would include Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, and Salesforce. And we operate in a number of very fast growing sectors and a number of rapidly growing economies. I mean, you're saying you're in Dakar. I mean, West Africa, WEMU is very exciting. Next, we have a robust capital structure. We've got an incredibly powerful balance sheet. We've got hard and soft infrastructure, which our competitors would die for. You expect the experience similar to what you would get from Amazon and Alibaba. So we've made large changes to our business to be able to deliver that level of service because we don't want these people, these big techs, fintechs, and new entrants to stand between us and our clients. Essentially, what we've done is we've tilted the organization and are running it on the basis of client centricity rather than the sale of products. And we are increasingly doing activities that are also adjacent to banking, like, for example, trade, like agriculture. Do you have a particular example, say, in the agricultural space? Is there a particular product or tool you could explain to us a little bit more? 
Yeah, so take Power Pulse. Uh, where what we are doing is we are coordinating activities between players in the power sector. Uh, we're providing them with connectivity between generators and distributors. In agriculture, we have got a proposition called One Farm, where we're working with farmers, helping them with understanding weather patterns, when to transact on their crops, uh, how to get fertilizer, where to get it from, how to make those payments, and how to hedge. It sounds like there's a lot happening now. I wonder, though, does the rise of these fintechs suggest in some way that traditional banks have not been focused enough on you know, the informal sector, the unbanked, or on making cross-border trade easier for smaller players? What the fintechs and the big techs bring is the ability to connect people far more cheaply than the traditional way in which banks used to do it through branch networks, through ATMs, which are hugely expensive. So they effectively are able to reduce the cost to serve. And the magic in that context, Kindly, is then the ability to marry that with the ability to manage risk, manage compliance, manage customer relationships in a way that we believe uh, fintechs, telcos find hard to do. And so partnerships in that context become very, very important. So my argument to you would be, it's not so much that banks have ignored uh, inclusion and have ignored people. They've just had a different cost structure and a different ability to distribute. Working together with these new players puts you in a position to be able to make one and one three, right? I wanted to take a step back and just ask a little bit about the broader macroeconomic context. There's a growing view that rising inflation in the rich world may prompt central banks to tighten sooner than expected. Are you concerned that investment may start fleeing emerging markets, including Africa, as interest rates rise in the rich world, as we've indeed seen happen in the past? I think there's always that risk. And my view is that what emerging countries need to do is to make sure that their policy frameworks are intact they improve the ease of doing business and make it attractive for people to continue uh, being invested in these emerging markets. But you're right, you know, if if there's a monetary tightening, increase in interest rates uh, elsewhere, there will be a risk-off situation on emerging markets. So I, I think I agree entirely with you. I mean, how worried are you? Is that something you're already looking to kind of act against and hedge against in some way? We worry about it immensely, but remember we ran a portfolio of businesses. If you take our West African business, it's very tightly linked with the oil price. If you look at East African countries, they're very linked to the Far East, as well as Dubai uh, and India. If you look at South Africa, South Africa is much more tightly linked to the EU and also to, uh, to other emerging markets. And our view is that the portfolio will respond. Uh, we've got natural hedges in that sense. You mentioned oil, and obviously with COP26 in Glasgow coming up, climate change is, is ever higher on the agenda. I saw Standard Bank uh, la is launching its climate strategy in 2022, which will include targets to reduce exposure to fossil fuel assets. But I was also curious, uh, I see that some of your competitive banks in South Africa uh, have announced they'll stop financing coal-fired projects within five years. But as I understand it, you've not set such a limit yet. Can you talk us through the thinking behind that choice? We have to find ways to support emissions reduction and climate adaptation, whilst at the same time pursuing opportunities to promote sustainable growth and human development. We have to do both on the continent. 
So we are committed to setting out uh, long-term goals that get us to a portfolio mix that is net zero by 2050. Uh, at the moment, we are not committed to uh, financing any new coal power stations, uh, and we will be led by the evidence and by the science. Just to finish up on this topic, I'd love to turn it around in a way. I mean, do you think too much is being demanded of African countries to cut their emissions and avoid fossil fuels, given A, the historically small emissions on the continent, but B, the fact that many parts of Africa still lack access to reliable energy and electricity at all? I think the process has to be dialectical. We can't, as Africa, make the case that we need to be on a developmental path similar to the first, second, and third industrial revolution and cause the emissions that are associated with that. So that that case cannot be made because in any event, Africa will suffer the hardest as a result of environmental degradation. So the case is not that Africa should be left off the hook. It's just that the transition must be a just one. There has to be a balance between what we do on the environmental front with the social impact and the social outcomes. It's certainly an important debate uh, at the moment. One of the things that we hear and I hear increasingly in our reporting is the idea that more of Africa's own savings should be invested in the continent. You know, for example, through pension funds, that kind of thing. That's obviously somewhat more common in South Africa uh, than elsewhere. But does it concern you that a considerable volumes of African savings wind up invested abroad rather than financing projects here in Africa? It is a concern, but I suppose capital will go to where the risks are lowest and returns are highest. And it's behoven on Africans to make sure that the risk-reward ratio is acceptable to savers uh, on the continent. African savers are as rational as international savers, right? They will put their money where they believe they'll get maximum returns given the risk assumed. Yeah, that makes sense. Can I ask you in that context uh, whether you invest your own savings primarily in Africa or outside the continent? My savings are almost exclusively on the African continent. My personal savings, yes, they are. Uh, That's great to hear. Uh, All of this is fascinating. And thanks so much for such a wide range of discussion. It's been really interesting to talk with you. Thank you, Kinley. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasteconomist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan, Nico Ravast is the sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Schanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>